welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. Uh, this is Cole Fakes. I'm back with Terry Fakes for another episode of Walking Through Biblical Books. And we started in the book of Romans in 2018, and then in our end of the year, we promised to do more of that. And in fact, we've made a commitment. One of the things we want to do on this podcast is we want to walk through every single book of the Bible over the next couple of years. And so we mm-hmm. thought we'd start 2019 with an easy one, <laughs> and we are going to be walking through the book of Job today. Uh, actually, if I had to pick one book of the Bible that I would recommend studying before you read, the book of Job might be that book. Right. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it today is not only is it one of the most difficult books in the Bible, but it's certainly one of the most meaningful books in the Bible. Right. And uh, Dad, you are teaching a series on it right now. So I wanted to check in with you to kick this off and say you're halfway through a series on Job. Um, what are you studying? What are you seeing? How would you intro the book of Job for somebody? Great question. Uh, you know, my first observation about the book of Job is that and I know this isn't a very uh, religious or spiritual approach, but it is beautiful literature. Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson said that there is no greater poem in ancient or modern times than the poem that is the book of Job. Uh, Thomas Mm. Carlyle said there's nothing written in or out of the Bible that uh, is of equal literary merit. And when you get into the book of Job, you realize that it's basically framed with a little prose, a little story at the beginning, and uh, prologue, and then there's a little prose or a little uh, narrative at the end, an epilogue, and in between there are all these chapters, maybe 40 chapters of Hebrew poetry, and there are some of the most beautiful lines and some of the most beautiful observations in that poetry. So it's a beautiful book in or out of the Bible. There are a lot of people that study the book of Job who are not religious at all, but they want to study it for its literary value. Now, you and I realize it has far more than literary value, but I like to point that out because God and the Bible in general uh, is not only the revealed Word of God, it's also beautiful. And so I urge people to read it and savor it and and enjoy it. As far as uh, its framing, you get these uh, two chapters at the beginning that have a very unique opening where you see Satan coming into the courts of God, coming with all the other angels to present themselves to the king, very much like something would happen in the secular world. But the servants of the king come to present themselves, and Satan, the accuser, makes some accusations to God. Afterwards, you see most of the rest of the book playing itself out as Job undergoes suffering and begins to wrestle with some of those accusations. And then at the end, you see the resolution of this in a narrative from God to Job and his friends. It's a beautifully structured book, and it's, uh, it's one of the most unusual books in the Bible. Yeah, certainly the structure of it is unusual. The subject matter of it is unusual. The poetry of it, uh, I think linguistically is unusual, but the poetry of it is really what we're used to seeing in the prophets. Right. So to kick off the book of Job, we begin, and and this is one of those scenes at the beginning that uh, people talk about all the time. It's it's one of those where, you know, I, I, I feel like if we talk about Satan, most American Christians have derived their understanding of Satan from about two parts Milton, two parts the book of Job, and one part the rest of Scripture. (laughs) I think that's exactly right. This is probably one of the more prominent uh, passages about Satan, the accuser. And you see the opening, like we talked about, in chapters 1 and 2. You get a scene on earth. It's almost like a play. You get the scene 1, you're introduced to Job. He's a righteous and upright man, blameless, who avoids evil and pursues righteousness. And so the book frames it very, very much up front that Job is a righteous individual. The scene then changes to heaven. And in chapter one, all the angels come before God and Satan, which is a title, not a name, the Satan, the accuser, 
comes before God, and God said, Satan, you've been walking around the earth. Have you seen my servant Job? He's upright, he shuns evil, and he fears God. And Satan says, well, that's true, but God, that's only because you bless him. Well, there's Mm -hmm. a point that's to be made there because Job has seven sons, three daughters. He has influence. He has wealth. He has uh, basically position of respect in his community. And so what Satan is saying to Job and by transference to all of us today is you serve God mainly because he blesses you. And that's his first accusation against Job. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like to point out at this point is if Job lived today, we would probably think of Job as the perfect Christian. And I don't uh-huh. mean this to sound as uh, really as cynical as it does, but honestly, if you ask today who is the perfect Christian, I would argue they would be devout, of course. They would be God-fearing, absolutely. They would shun evil, but they would also be influential, They've probably written some books. They probably speak at conferences. They're probably relatively affluent. In other words, the perfect Christian sort of has it all. Well, Job has it all in that time, mm-hmm. uh, that time period. I think Job is every man. I really mm-hmm. think that the story of Job is intended, and it transfers remarkably well for a 3,800-year-old story in terms of Job is just as applicable today as he was 3,800 years ago. So when Satan makes that accusation against Job, he could just as easily be making that accusation against you or against me. Yeah, that's a a really interesting way to frame the book. Um, what, What can we know about Job? That's a great question. Uh, you know, there's a, you can probably jump in here and add a little bit more, but I, I simplify it for my audience. In other words, it appears from the book that Job, first of all, uh, is a believer in God, obviously, but he's not a Jew. He mm-hmm. is living probably in the era between Abraham, roughly 2000 BC, and about 1500 BC. I usually just pull out a date of 1800 BC and date that for my audience and say he's Mm -hmm. living in this general time period. He's probably living in northern Arabia. He's one of those people who is a descendant of Noah, of course, who knows God, fears God, serves God. Now, he's in the minority in that time period. Not that many people did. So he's living a little bit after Abraham, but he's not a descendant of Abraham, but he is a God-fearing individual, which in my view makes him even more universally applicable. He's not Mm -hmm. a Jew. He's simply someone like you or me who loves God, fears God, and shuns evil. Yeah. He, you know, it's fascinating to think about what we know about him as a character and and who the Jews would have thought that he was. Um, I think a lot of scholars think that the first reference to Job in the Bible was in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel makes a statement that that if even if Job and Daniel and Noah were there, God still wouldn't spare these people. Right. But uh, it's pretty obvious from that text that the Daniel he's talking about can't be the Daniel of the book of Daniel because those events haven't happened yet. Right. So I don't know that it's a 100% match that that's a reference to Job uh, of, of this book, but he doesn't really show up very, very much else in the Bible. And so it's hard to know who he is. I think the contextual clues are interesting. First of all, it, it appears that this is written to place him in the time period of the patriarchs. Right. So he's set up in such a way that resembles Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, the the decision you have to make there is some scholars will read that and they'll say, well, it's set up to look like the patriarchs because it was probably written in the exile and is a story from kind of way back when in the folklore of Israel. Mm -hmm. You know, the other simple uh, explanation of that is it's written to look like he's a patriarch because it was written in the time of the patriarchs. Uh, Right. Absolutely. uh, we we really don't know exactly. You know, some secular commentators, I think Robert Alter looks at the text and says that the Hebrew that's used in the text is a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But since there's no place names outside of the first line, right, and there aren't any references to historical events, it's really hard to tell 
when it was written or when Job is supposedly living. Right. Now, there is one theory that I think is really interesting. I don't know how much veracity there is to this, but it's interesting. There are some who think that Job is mentioned in Genesis chapter 36 as the second king of Edom. So his name there is Jobab. Right. And that would be that would be the right time period for him to be in the patriarchal era and it's the right um, it, it, it puts him in the right people group to be outside of Israel but a God fearer right but we really don't know that that's actually a reference to him. I'll tell you though what I do like about that reference is it's apparent in the book that job, is a man of power and influence beyond just your regular guy. Absolutely. Uh, It would make sense for Job to be a king or at least a ruler of a community. I mean, you think Abraham wasn't a king, but he certainly had a kingdom. He had a, you know, had, had a giant empire of servants and he has a standing army and he obviously had a, uh, pretty big group of people and materials and wealth at his disposal. The same thing seems to be true of Job. Particularly if you count his possessions. I agree with that. So with that in mind, I I really agree with what you said earlier. It doesn't really matter when the book was written. The clues that we get are trying to give us a picture of the kind of person that Job is. And the kind of person he is, is is almost one of those comparisons where you say, if this could happen to this kind of person who's who's blameless, he's upright, he's wealthy, he has power and influence, he's revered at the gate, he has these kids that are that are worshiping God. I, one of my favorite verses in here is uh, when it says in verse 5 that Job was so righteous that he would sin and consecrate his kids and he would rise early in the morning yeah. and offer burnt offerings for the sake of his kids. Right. Um, you know, he's just an incredible guy. And the story goes, if this could happen to him, this could happen to anybody. You raise a couple of good points there, if I could just uh, emphasize a couple of things. The first one, going back a little, the time in history when these events happened and the time in history when these events were written down could very easily be two different things. I also am a an admirer of Robert Alter and his uh, expertise in Hebrew literature. And I don't have any heartburn with the idea that the Hebrew of this is later than the patriarchal period. It does not bother me that this story was written down, perhaps at a little later time than when it happened. I do think the story itself appears to be in the patriarchal era. And then as far as the writing, I wouldn't personally place it as late as the exile, but whatever. The fact that those two events are different time periods is pretty normal. That doesn't bother me at all. The second thing that you mention is, I really think that the ambiguity about Job, the fact that we don't know a lot about him, I mean, perhaps he is the king of Genesis 36, perhaps not. I actually think that plays to the strength of the story in the sense that And I typically get asked this in my classes. Do you think the story of Job, that Job actually happened, or is it a story to teach us truths? Well, I believe that it actually happened, but I understand the idea of people who say, well, I don't know that I'm really ready yet to believe that all these ancient things happened, but I'm very much willing to listen to the message that they have. And I'm very comfortable with that to start with. I think by the time you get to the end, I like to, at the end of the class, talk to people about why it matters whether or not this happened. But at the beginning, I'm comfortable and say, well, let's just move on and let's study it in the meantime. But I think that the fact of Job being every man, he's not a Jew, obviously he's not a Christian, but he is kind of a representative of all of us through all times. I really think there's some intentionality in the fact that we don't know too much about Job. So I actually Mm -hmm. think that's pretty clever on God's part. Now, you could argue the other side is, well, it's a once upon a time story. But what if it's also just very cleverly done so that you and I don't latch on to too many details of Job? We realize, hey, wait a minute, I could be Job. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's really true. And I think it's important to the story that we do understand that what happened to Job in some way connects to the experiences we have even now as believers nearly 4,000 years later. Right. So if we get into the story a little bit, we see the opening scene, the first two chapters give us a narrative of what's most commonly described as a wager between God and the devil. Walk us through that. Yeah, this probably causes people a little discomfort in some sense that basically Satan is making some accusations and God is allowing Satan, and I think you really need to pay attention to this, that God is allowing Satan to inflict certain punishments, sufferings, tragedies on Job. And in a sense, we're going to say, I mean, my first reaction, most people's first reaction is, hey, wait a minute. That's not fair. Even God mm-hmm. himself said Job was an upright man. And here he is saying to Satan, you can take all that he has, just don't touch him. And then in chapter 2, when Satan comes back and says, well, he didn't sin like I thought he would, but trust me, if you strike him with cancer or sores or some kind of physical ailment, he will. And God says, very well, don't take his life, but you can in afflict him personally. We look at that and we say, hey, wait a minute, that really violates our sense of fairness. And I think that that's exactly what this book is intended to do, because it Mm -hmm. wants to explore this idea of, is Satan right? What is the basis for our faith? And perhaps shed some light on why suffering and bad things might happen to people who do not seem to deserve them. I think it's brilliantly crafted so that we, as the reader, immediately sense a lot of cognitive dissonance. We like, wait a minute, I need to hear the rest of this story because I'm already struggling with this. I just think that's brilliantly crafted by God to draw us into some of the deepest questions that we have and get us emotionally engaged. That's the other thing is it's interesting when you teach this that of all the things I teach, people get more emotionally engaged with the book of Job. They get, uh, they have righteous indignation or perhaps some of them have very much sympathetic feelings towards uh, people in their family who've struggled with things like this. Job really engages uh, our emotions and our mind. It's a brilliantly mm-hmm. crafted introduction to this book. That's a, you know what, that's a great point because if you, if you begin the book of Job and you're reading it like the text frames it, mm-hmm. there's probably two things that are going through your head at the same time. The first one is you read it and you say, hold on, this is not, this doesn't seem like the rest of the Bible. Right. You say, is this really the relationship that God and Satan have with each other? Um, is this really the way that temptation works? Is this really the way natural disasters work? I mean, your your equilibrium gets shaken from the opening page of the book of Job. And I think that's a good thing. The second thing that's happening is there's a disjunction that needs to take place at the beginning of the book of Job. And that is, for some reason, it's crept into Christianity uh, the the you know, a lot of Christians are effectively believing in karma, even mm-hmm. though that's nowhere in the Christian faith. It's nowhere in the Bible. Exactly. But we have this very ingrained sense that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. And right. all of a sudden in the book of Job, you see the worst things happen to the best person. Right. And from the get-go, you realize, okay, the economy of God's world and the economy of our world are completely different. Right. There is no one-to-one correlation between doing good things and getting good things, at least in the way that it's portrayed at first. Because I want to come back to that and say that the theme of Job is really sublime in the way that it resolves that tension by the end of the book. Exactly. You know, one of the things I like to teach is that God doesn't hit this problem uh, at a tangent. I mean, if it were you Mm -hmm. or me, uh, so say something bad happened to Terry, uh, you could say, well, you know, Terry, you might have deserved that. And I'd have to say, well, you know, I have sinned. But God doesn't take a, you know, kind of a sketchy case. He says, I'm going to give you the best guy you can imagine. 
And Job is indeed mm-hmm. the best guy I can imagine. And I'm going to let the worst things you can imagine happen to him. I do respect God for simply saying, I'm going to hit this head on. No ambiguity, mm-hmm. you know, no shading this issue. I'm going to tackle it head on. Best guy you know, worst things you can imagine happening to him. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, though, there's some beautiful passages in this. I mean, at the end of losing all of his possessions and his children, you know, he has that famous passage where it says at the end of chapter one, Job tore his robe, shaved his head, signs of grieving, fell on the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those might be some of the best known words in the Bible, and to me, easily some of the most profound words of faith mm-hmm. in the Bible. Yeah, that is, if you take 120 through 122, uh-huh. it rose towards Rob worshiped, says that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. If you take those verses, that's really the message of the book of Job in a nutshell. Exactly. I mean, that that's what this entire book is going to commentate on. But it's going to take a long time to get there. Uh, and there's a good reason for that that we'll discuss in a minute. Um, really, all the action of Job takes place in two pages. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You know, right at the beginning and right at the end. But starting in chapter 3, his or starting in chapter 2, moving into chapter 3, his friends come to comfort him, which is kind of ironic because we'll see later they're not a very good comfort. Right. But they come to comfort him, and I, I love this passage in 2.11. Now, Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, or disaster is that word. They came each from their own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and we don't really know where these guys are from, Right. Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And here's here's the real uh, here's the real surprise. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for his suffering was very great. <laughs> and uh, after the seven days and the seven nights, then they open up their mouths and uh, Job speaks first and for the next 39 chapters we get this dialogue right. between the four of them and then uh, another character who's going to enter later right uh, so what walk us through the dialogues yeah the dialogues are interesting chapter three uh, I, I know you're going to disagree with me on this because you disagreed with uh Ecclesiastes. I think it was my favorite book, and it was your 66th book. Chapter 3 is one of the darkest passages in the Bible, but to me it's one of the most heartfelt and profound uh, chapters in the Bible. He, Job begins mm-hmm. by lamenting, and he begins by saying, let the day perish on which I was born. And he basically makes three points here. He says, first, it would be better never to be born than to suffer like this. You can see he's forgotten the comfort and pleasure of his life before he, you know, in his world, his world of suffering. And one of the things I teach is suffering shrinks our world. It puts Mm. us in a little dark cocoon and we don't see the perspective. And you can see Job losing his perspective, and rightfully so. I'm not criticizing him, sitting there suffering like he has. But he basically says, I wish I'd never been born. That would be better than this. Mm -hmm. Or secondly, uh, down in uh, verse 17, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and die? In other words, wouldn't it be better to die than to live like this? And then Mm -hmm. finally, he ends in verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Meaning, God, why Mm. did you ever let me be born? knowing that this would happen to me. Now, that's exactly what you would expect someone in suffering to say, to wonder. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's still that's true for us as well. I realize we don't often suffer like Job, but honestly, uh, you know, when you see the tragedies now of people losing children or a spouse dying or the 
senselessness of cancer or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, and it's easy to see us crying out the same kinds of things to God. I, I just think chapter 3 is, is beautiful in its darkness, and it's so human. All of us mm-hmm. can understand that, that thinking. And so Job yes. begins to pour out his heart uh, you know, to God and say, God, I, I have no way of understanding this. I, I have no perspective in which to put this. I can't answer the question of why I'm struggling to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, the next, all this poetry till we get to chapter 38 is Job's friends trying to tell him how this makes sense. And needless right. to say, they do a pretty poor job. They do have this idea you were talking about. I mean, first Eliphaz speaks and he says, you know what? The innocent don't get punished. So if you're innocent, like you say you are, then maybe God's just disciplining you. Because you see, the Mm -hmm. problem here is Job and you and I, because we get to sit in the gallery and we know everything that's going on, we know that Job didn't do anything to deserve this. But his Mm -hmm. friends come forward with their understanding. You know, Eliphaz says, well, you just trust in your innocence if you really are. Maybe God's just disciplining you. And then his next friend says, well, you know what? If you do good, you prosper. If you do evil, you get punished. So Job, why don't you just fess up? Because you must have done something. And then thirdly, Zophar, who lacks uh, any kind of social skills at all, says, Job, you know, you're right. If if you had uh, not sinned, you'd be prospering. But since you're not, you obviously sinned. And you know what, Job? I actually think you probably deserve even worse than you've gotten. Which prompted mm-hmm. me to ask the question, Zophar, what could be worse than this? Seriously. He's lost everything that he has. And so his friends proved to be miserable counselors. And one of my favorite verses in the book of Job is in chapter 12, verse 1. After his three friends try to explain to him that, Job, come on, now you must have done something. He says, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. In other Mm -hmm. words, you guys are so smart. When you die, there probably won't be any wisdom left in the world. And (laughs) you can just see, you can hear him as he sits there scraping the sores on his body saying, I used to think that too, guys. But the reality of this and my own knowledge that I did not sin brings me to a conundrum that I can't solve. And so they Mm -hmm. go back and forth from chapter to chapter really wrestling with the idea of, well, wait a minute, under what circumstances could bad things like this happen to someone who did not deserve it? And his friends can never really get a handle on that. Yeah, the the way that you enter the dialogue is by heaping on layers and layers and layers of pain for Job. And it's easy because the suffering is in some ways nebulous. I mean, there are some things that are fixed. Obviously, the death of his children, the sores. uh, But you get lost in that a little bit once you enter the dialogue and you forget that the depths of Job's suffering are nearly endless. Mm -hmm. To the extent that as good as he was at the beginning, so that it's, it's almost like the book is saying... Hey, if it could happen to this guy, it could happen to anyone. You go as low as you could possibly go to say, hey, if you're suffering, Job was was there with you. I mean, there the the right. limits of his suffering are almost boundless. He has relational familial suffering, he has bodily suffering, he has hopelessness. I mean, he has everything. He has desertion of relationships later in the book. Anything that you're going through, you should be able to identify with Job. Uh, but, but I wanted to earmark one other thing that's interesting. There's a near parallel passage to Job chapter 3 in the book of Jeremiah chapter 20, where Jeremiah, and this is an interesting thing we can talk about when we do the book of Jeremiah, you have to pay close attention in the book of Jeremiah to the autobiographical passages. And one of those is in... 2014 through 18, 
where Jeremiah begins to talk about his own experience as a prophet of the Lord. Uh-huh. And he says the exact same thing. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my brother bore me, my, when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. And he says, you know, I wish the guy that had announced it to my dad has an, had announced my death instead. Right. And when the hand of the Lord is on a person, it's not always a joyous occasion. Right. Because one of the things that we see in the book of Job is there's this strange relationship between God and Satan that we'll resolve at the end where God is actually granting permission to Satan to do the things that he's doing. Right. And so we get this whole problem of evil thing that, that I want to talk about in a little bit of what is God responsible for? Why does he treat Job this way? And, and the same thing is true across the Bible. Sometimes when God is present... That doesn't mean that the people are happy. Sometimes right. the presence of the Lord is actually something that you know made Jeremiah wish that he had never been born. And that's another interesting thread that's woven into this story of Job is how does the presence of God or the lack of the presence of God impact humans who are suffering? That's a great point. I'm going to make some a more trivial point. Uh, two ideas here that it's a good time to throw this in. One of the things I like to teach is when you read this, if you pull back a little bit, you realize that Job is the center of his story, just like you and I are. I mean, fundamentally, we think this life is Terry's story and the rest of you are, you know, you're extras in this story. In other words, Job is trying to figure out, God, why is this happening to me? And as we sit back in the gallery understanding everything, we kind of realize, wait a minute, this actually isn't all about Job. And so Mm -hmm. when you see, and same with Jeremiah, I understand that Job and Jeremiah, and by the way, that Jeremiah passage is far too close to Job to be a coincidence, in my opinion. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, the point is, is, as they feel that weight upon them, we get the perspective to learn that, you know what, wait a minute, when we suffer... Maybe it's not all about us, because frankly, 3,800 years of people have looked at the story of Job and have understood how to deal with their own suffering. So first of all, our suffering isn't always about us. And then secondly, Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you about God and Satan's relationship, because here's the way I would cast it. Fundamentally, what this book is about is Satan says people serve God because he takes care of them. By the way, something Sigmund Freud would have agreed with is we believe in this mythical made-up God because we are afraid and we need to make up a father figure, if you will, who will protect Mm -hmm. us. God says, no, I don't think that's why people believe. And Job plays this out. And the question is, what does it take for Job to have faith in God? What does it take for Mm -hmm. Job to adhere to God? And the same question could be asked of you and me. One of the interesting things about the dialogue is they go around in circles and the book has an interesting structure to it. You see each of the three speakers speak. You see Job respond. You see them individually speak and Job responds. Uh, And you do that for a really long time. Yeah. To where they get to the point where they're at loggerheads and they realize, you know, we're not going to make any sense of this. Uh, They think that the world works in a good people get good things, bad people get judgment type system. Mm -hmm. Job says, look, I'm not holding anything back. I haven't done anything wrong. Right. So that can't be the solution. So they get to the point where they don't really know how to resolve this. And now we get a new character entering the mix. Right. Yeah, you get Elihu uh, jumping into this. He's younger. And so he's uh, been listening to everyone. For example, in chapter 33, he says, hear my speech, Job, and listen to my words. Uh, Behold, I open my mouth, and the tongue in my mouth speaks. He says, I've held back because I was the youngest among you, but since nobody else seems to be appropriately rebuking you, I feel like I need to step up and rebuke you uh, because these guys don't seem to be out arguing you. And in chapter Mm -hmm. 35, as he continues this speech, Elihu uh, condemns Job, and he says, Do you really think you're just? Uh, Do you really think you can stand before God and present your case? He says in verse 6, If you've sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And your transgressions are multiplied. How can you possibly stand before God? And uh, then in verse 8, Your wickedness 
concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness, the son of man. Meaning, you know, he's really going to try to tell Job, look, enough of this pretense. Let go of this. You have obviously sinned, and nobody can stand before God and say that they're righteous. So just confess. Perhaps God will at least kill you and put you out of your misery. So Elihu's mm-hmm. an interesting character. What do you make of him? Because you have this nice symmetry of three sets of three dialogues through the book, and right. then Elihu comes in as this extra character. How do you read that? See, that's interesting. There are commentators that'll say that Elihu is inserted into the text at a later date. Uh-huh. That he doesn't fit the literary nature of this book. And, right. and yeah, I would make two observations on that. The first one being what after reading the book of Job up to up to the thirties, what makes you think that it will have a nice and neat structure? Because nothing else about this book is nice and neat like that would be. Um, And then secondly, he enters in and, you know, you see people and there might be something to this. I've never been able to really make cogent sense of, of, of this line of thinking, but... You see people say that each one of these guys is arguing from a different perspective. Hmm. And while it's true that they do have their own voice, I mean, the poet that put Job together is a master because he's able to create a real dialogue. It's not just a fake dialogue between characters who all sound the same. It is a real dialogue with real characters. But I've never been able to get a clean distinction between all four of the speakers outside of Job. What, what I think they're doing is they're giving you multiple vantage points on one perspective. Right. And that is when you suffer, there are always going to be people who will speak on behalf of God and on their own behalf to comment on your suffering. And most of the time, at least almost 99% of the time in the book of Job, they're wrong. Right. They have this sense. I think Elihu is the most pointed. He has this sense of what God is like, and he wants to, he wants to rationalize and explain why these things are happening to Job. And then God's going to answer and say, he has no idea what he's talking about. Right. So I, I all agree. four of them put together make the point that, uh, you know, they claim to explain, they claim to speak for God, but none of them end up really knowing what they're talking about. Yeah, I think that's why, obviously, in chapter 42 in the epilogue, God is not, by the way, and this is something else to note, God is not angry at Job for all his wrestling and struggling in the midst of his suffering, because he always turns to God. Even when he's complaining to God, He's complaining to God. He continues Mm -hmm. to turn to God. You know, Job is caught in a dilemma. And basically, if you buy his friend's uh, worldview, it's if you do good, you'll prosper. Well, you're not prospering, Job. You're suffering. That means you must have done wrong. And here's the problem. They don't understand this, but Job knows, I know, either I've done something wrong or God is doing something wrong. And mm-hmm. Job knows, and you and I know, that Job didn't do anything wrong. God himself yes. says Job didn't. So Job is stuck with the only conclusion from that worldview is God must not be just. Job is right. not quite willing to believe that. And so he continues to go to God and struggle. And I think that's why in verse uh, chapter 42... God is not angry at Job, but he's angry at his friends, and he says, "You." and this is interesting, exactly what you said, Cole. When they talk about the nature of God, he says, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. In other words, you have not mm-hmm. accurately demonstrated God's character. That's exactly what you were saying. So let's pause here for a second. What, what are some of the analogs to what Job's friends are saying, because I think it's easy when you know the book of Job, it's easy to read the book of Job and say, okay, well, his friends are going to say stuff that, you know, is wrong. And obviously nobody believes that. Uh, I'm on the side of Job. But Mm -hmm. what are some ways that we do very similar things to the things that Job's friends are saying in times of suffering? Oh, they're numerous. I really do think this is the timeless book. I just give you a simple example. Uh, my neighbor seems to be prospering and 
I have cancer. My neighbor doesn't go to church. My neighbor doesn't believe in God, but I have been devout all my life. Or two people whose children, God forbid, are sick, and my child died and another child did not. What was Mm -hmm. wrong with my service of God? It's so easy to just slip in what I call the back door of that idea of Job's friends, that in some sense, our behavior and our devotion, our, quote, faith to God, should in some sense elicit a reciprocal benefit from God. I I really Mm -hmm. think that's, I don't know, maybe it's just part of human nature. What do you think? Yeah. There's a lot of empathy that takes place in the book of Job from the characters towards each other and from the reader towards Job. One of the things you experience when you're reading the book of Job is you're empathizing with his pain, you're empathizing with the explanations that the characters are giving, but at the end you're also empathizing with the fact that none of this is satisfactory. Right. So part of the thing that's interesting about the book of Job is it doesn't give any easy answers. Like I always right. pause and recoil a little bit when somebody te- teaches the book of Job in a way that has a soundbite answer for what the book of Job is trying to teach. Absolutely Because agree. even the book of Job doesn't have a soundbite for right. what the book is supposed to teach. Like exactly. I said, there's a summary at the beginning of, of what the book is going to show, but even that summary is not something that's a, a, a pat answer. In fact, one of the commentators, one of the ancient commentators suggested that Job is so long because its message is so difficult to grasp. Mm. I think it said something along the lines of the, the book of Job has to be long because the answer to the problem posed in Job takes you a very long time to wrestle with and make yes. sense of. So in that way, the medium of Job is the message. Right. The Holy Spirit inspired the book of Job, and if there were a really easy answer to give about why suffering happens, uh, then I think the Holy Spirit probably could have worked out a way to say that. But instead, what we have is this long, sprawling dialogue, this wrestling with this problem that in the end doesn't get hugely resolved. I mean, we're going to take some things away from it, but even at the end, there's not a bow on top of the book of Job. That's exactly right. And intentionally so, because I don't think that there is a bow in this life on the top of suffering. I Mm -hmm. really don't think that you can always resolve and make sense of suffering within the confines of our 70, 80, 90 years of life. And I Mm -hmm. think if it had resolved itself so simply in a you know tweetable soundbite, I would frankly distrust it because I don't right. think complicated problems like suffering have simple soundbite answers to them. And you're right, the book of Job is long because you actually have to sit with it for a while and let it soak mm-hmm. in before you can begin to understand what it wants to say to you. Mm-hmm. I, I think we bring questions to the book of Job and we say, God, uh, is this your answer? Because I want to know why bad things happen to people who don't seem to deserve them. And I want to know why something bad's happening to me. So can I just read this book? We bring questions to Job, but I really think God wants to say, sit down and let me pour some things into you. Just hold mm-hmm. your questions for a minute and listen to what I have to say. And I agree. I think that's why the book of Job is as long as it is. I also think Mm -hmm. that's why in chapters 38 to 41, where God appears, which is some of the most majestic poetry in all of the Bible, in 38 through 41, I think that's part of why it's an unsatisfactory answer. I mean, I remember the first time I read the book of Job and I got to the end of Elihu's last speech and God shows up and he speaks out of the whirlwind and I thought, okay, now we're going to understand the answer And I read it, and I thought, I am completely in awe of what God just said, but it absolutely doesn't give me a simple answer to this question. That's so true. I mean, I think we expect that that God's speech at the end of this book will be like correcting a multiple-choice test. Exactly. You you get the wrong one, and immediately you see what the right one was, and you go, oh, well, that that totally makes sense. Yeah. That's not what happens at the end of this book at all. It's not. Chapter 38 begins... 
God interrupts Elihu, and the Lord answers Job. He speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's not what we expected from God at all (laughs) at the end of this book. It's not. It's not our model for pastoral care. Let me put it that way. (laughs) That is very true. (laughs) I know. You get this idea of, and I love this, verse uh, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He isn't Mm. really answering the situation of Job, although you can see that God does indeed have immense compassion for Job and through Jesus Christ, his son, for all of humanity and is willing to actually suffer himself for it. So there's no lack of compassion, but he actually says, Job, for you to understand this, you have to understand where were you in the beginning when I laid the foundation of the earth? And it begins to provide Job perspective, the one thing Mm -hmm. he has not had through all this time of suffering. Right. There's no way for them to break out of their frame. And, and, and for these characters, out, the, the four characters, not including Job, they bring a very limited frame and a very limited set of options to the problems that Job is facing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things we expect God to do is to answer their replies and their counsel. But instead what he does is he comes in and he decides to just blow up the categories that they've brought to try and handle this issue. Exactly. Because it looks like a bit of a tangent in in chapters 38 and 39 when God basically just goes through and asks the same question over and over and over Uh and over again. And the poetry in here is amazing. Oh, it's beautiful. I love in, in, in chapter 38, it's chapter 38 verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Yeah. And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Um, in, in verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow yeah. or the storehouses of hail? I mean, what a great mental yeah. image. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And yeah. a way for the thunderbolt. I mean, the, the the poetry, what's interesting here, and I think Alter points this out, there are also several other secular commentators who notice that the author of the book of Job has a different style and a different voice for all the characters, but the highest and best poetry is reserved for the mouth of God. Wow, now that is I so mean, true. He speaks in a way that is elevated above the other characters in the book. Yeah. I mean, to me, chapter 38, no better poetry anywhere. I mean, Mm -hmm. has the reign of Father? Who has begotten the drops of the dew? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? I mean, majestic speech and majestic ideas. But let me see if you agree with this. Let me boil that down, what God is doing. And uh, I may be oversimplifying this, but one of the ways I like to talk about suffering and talk about Job is, uh, and this is something that uh, Tim Keller has also mentioned, and I appreciate uh, his insights on this, is it's really hard to know the end of the story. Uh, The only person that knows the last chapter of your life is the author of your life. And so as you and I live it out, as we are in chapter 12 of a 20-chapter book, we do not know what the end is. God knows what the end of this story is. And so God has the perspective to make sense of this suffering. And it seems to me, and I may be stretching this, but it seems to me that in chapters 38 and 39, God is saying, Job, you don't even know how this story began you certainly cannot know how this story ends. And so right. he's framing it in a, in a very specific way to say, Job, I love you. I mean, he's not saying that in there, but I'm going to add this in. I love you, but Job, there's no way you can understand this. Your choices are trust me or not, because you mm-hmm. weren't here at the beginning, and you cannot know the end of this story. And there's a kind of a strange comfort to me in that, to know that in chapter 38, God was here at the beginning of the story. He mm-hmm. is the author of the story. And then by implication, 
he is trustworthy to write the last chapter of my story. That really puts a fine point on it, um, and it makes sense of what God is actually doing in those chapters. Because if you go to the beginning of chapter 40, God finishes his speech, and it's and he, and he caps it off with this couplet in verse 2 of chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Yeah. He who argues with God, let him answer. And Job, in probably the wisest move of the entire book, gives a very short response to God's question. He says, Behold, I am a man of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Hmm. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. To go back to one of the themes that we brought up at the beginning of the book, the relationship that God has with Satan is interesting. The relationship that God has with the things that happened to Job are very interesting. Uh And they're resolved, at least explained, in these chapters 38, 39, and 40 where God speaks. Because if you notice, every single thing that God says has something to do with control or influence or power in the universe outside of human capacity. Right. So he's saying things like, have you lassoed the Leviathan? Have you uh, given the horse his might? Did you fill up the storehouses with snow? No, you didn't do anything like that. Right. And when it comes down to the charges that Job's friends are bringing against God, one of the charges is, either this is out of God's control because this isn't the way he operates, or you must have done something to deserve this. God comes in, blows up all those categories and says, look, I I can influence, I can control, I can do whatever I want, and I can be in charge of this situation even if you have no idea how to explain it. Exactly. You know, I make a, I want to home in on chapter 40 for a second. Here's how I read this. It's 38 and 39, God answers, and he basically speaks of his sovereignty. And I know when you read this, my first reading, I thought, oh, he's mad at Job. Well, it turns out you realize, no, he's not mad at Job. In fact, he commends Job in chapter 42. So I don't read this as God rebuking him. He just says, look, Job, you don't have the perspective. Where were you in the beginning? You don't see the end. But in chapter 40, and this so applies to you and me, is it seems to me he wants to take on a second question. And that is, not just Job's perspective, but Job has accused God of being unjust. And I don't blame him. I don't Mm -hmm. think God blames him. Because think about it. In Job's paradigm that we've discussed before, if you are righteous, good things happen to you. Hey, bad things are happening to Job. He must not be righteous. But you and I and Job know that he is. So his conclusion is, God, I think you're acting unjustly here. Chapter 40, to me, is brilliant. You and I and everybody I know have a sense of fairness. And I won't get on my Mm -hmm. uh, soapbox about fairness. Fairness is one of the the poorest ideas that we have. I mean, we don't even know what fairness is. And I think that's what Job is saying to God is, hey, wait a minute, this isn't fair. And let me read you some of chapter 40. So then the Lord answers Job 6, dress for action. I'll question you. You answer me. Kind of that same formula. He -hmm. says in verse 8, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be right? Meaning, Seriously, you're going to apply your sense of fairness to me? You're going to tell me that you know what's right and I I don't? And then he begins in this beautiful passage in verse 9. Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? He's basically saying, even if you knew what was right, you couldn't do it. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Listen to this. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him down. Look on everyone who Mm. is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Uh, Now, I may be stretching this, but I internalize this to my sense of fairness. And I hear this all the time in our world that, you know, God's not being fair. And it seems to me God here is saying, you know what? Human ideas of fairness are so flawed. How can you possibly compare that to the justice of God? What do you think Mm -hmm. about that? 
I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways in the book of Job is we said at the beginning there's a disjunction that happens right at the beginning of this book between what we picture as as what someone deserves mm-hmm. and what ends up happening to them. Right. Part of that, what what God exposes at the begin at the end of this speech is part of it is because we have no ability to bring about what we think fits right. each situation. The second thing is we don't have the comprehension to determine what fits each situation. So if you look at the reason that God is angry at the, at the end of the book is not because Job suffered. It's not because Job wrestled. It's not because Job questioned. It's because his friends said things that actually are inaccurate about the character of God. Hmm. One of the takeaways I think we have from the book of Job is it's okay to wrestle. It's okay to suffer and and even question why something is happening to you. What we're called to do is trust God's character. Right. You know, there's an ancient uh, Hebrew saying, and I, I'm not sure where this is from. I think I heard it from you. But uh, one of the explanations for evil in the world is if you knew the things that God knows, you would do the things that God does. Because we don't know what God knows, we can't fathom what to do in the situations that God actually takes action in. And so the role that we have is not to second-guess God, uh, but it's also not to diminish our suffering or to, or to say right. that it, it, it isn't actually painful. Our role is to trust that the God of the universe, the Almighty, is going to do what was what is good in His sight. Right. I completely agree with that. I, I think it's an un, in some ways this is an unsatisfactory answer. I mean, by this time in the book of Job, I've invested, you know, 40 chapters of slogging through Job, and I keep looking for, like you said, that soundbite answer of, okay, tell me why bad things are happening to me. Tell me why bad things happen to Job when neither of us think it's really deserved. And you get to the end, and God says, wrong question. Let me reframe Mm -hmm. the whole idea for you. In some sense, it's unsatisfactory, but in a bigger sense, it's the only answer that actually will let us navigate suffering in our lives. Mm -hmm. It's the only one that will bear the weight of the depth of the suffering that we see in Job. Because the question hangs over the book of Job, what if the situation never gets better? Right. You know, it's not it's it's not satisfactory to read suffering through the lens of suffering is just temporary. God is going to make up everything that he took away in the suffering, even though that is what he does at the, at the end of the book. It's it's unsatisfactory to say the only answer to suffering is it's going to get better. Right. Now, we do believe eschatologically that it will get better. Right. And we do believe the last words of the Bible, which says God eventually is going to wipe every tear from every eye. Right. But that statement is predicated on something that we have to get from the book of Job before the end of this book is going to make sense. And, and when I've taught Job in the past, the main point I would want to get across is the book of Job shows us that we should worship God so that we get God Right. Not so that we get anything else, and that's the ultimate. Think, I'm sorry, but that is the ultimate refutation of Satan's original accusations. Exactly, exactly. Satan basically poses the question: Would somebody serve God if God didn't do anything for the person? Exactly. And God's going to expose that Satan does not understand who God actually is. Right. See, this is the thing about Satan. You know, it's Satan's schemes don't make any sense if you think about it in the big picture. He is a subservient being to God. He's rebelled against God. He has, you know, dragged some angels with him. But in the end, God has already decreed that he's going to be defeated. Right. So you look at this and you're like, how is Satan proceeding to do what he's doing even in the midst of knowing what's going to happen at the end? And so you could say, well... You know, Satan's in denial, or well, this just goes to show the obstinacy of, of rebellion. But at the end of the day, Satan does not understand the character of God. What God asserts in the book of Job and throughout the entire Bible is the, the meaning of life for a human being 
is not to receive the gifts of God, is not to get the things that God can give. The meaning of life is to dwell with God, is to be Amen. with God. And in the midst of suffering, that's really the only answer. It's not enough to say the answer to suffering is God is going to restore your fortunes like he did for Job. The end of suffering is to say, even in suffering, you get God. Right. And that's better than anything else that you could ever get. It's the I am with you that's through the entire Bible is God's presence itself. It's almost like, you know, what? I mean, the best thing that I can imagine that could be written on anyone's tombstone and was probably written on Job's tombstone was this. He was willing to serve God for nothing in return. Mm -hmm. Just as Jesus Christ, God himself, was willing to die and suffer for us for nothing. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a powerful forecast, in my view, of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, we got to talk about the end of Job. I've got heartburn with this. I just want to I just want to be upfront about this. So at chapter 42, after the Lord rebukes Job's friends, and he said, Job, I need you to pray for these guys. And Job does. And in uh, verse 9, it says, uh, and then the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Put a bow on mm -hmm. it. Answer the questions. Everybody's good. But then you have this epilogue, verses 10 through 17, and it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, and he basically gave him twice as much as he had before. Okay, so for a long time, I wrestled with this. I thought, hmm. you know what? It, it spoils the book of Job. I want Job to continue to serve God and die as a guy who had cancer and sores all over his body. I don't want a happily ever after. And I, for a long time, I was tempted, and there are plenty of liberal scholars that would be happy to encourage this, to treat it like the longer ending of Mark, right? In other words, this is probably not original. But mm -hmm. I finally came around. Let me see what you think about this. I know what you think about my prior thinking is, I admit, that's not particularly spiritual. But it, it bothered me that it had a happily ever after ending. But mm -hmm. then I realized, could this be God really truly wrapping a bow on this with an eschatological point at the end? I don't think any of us think, honestly, that our suffering, when we get through with it, we'll get back everything that we had twice over. But if you listen to Jesus talking about our inheritance and Paul speaking about we are heirs of God, you have to realize that when we get to heaven, we will receive more than twice as much as our suffering was worth. We'll receive infinitely more than our suffering is worth. So I've come all the way around to see this ending and love it as the fulfillment of God's promises to us in the hereafter. Mm -hmm. It is interesting when you get to this, uh, you almost forget about the prologue to Job. And then when you get kind of the mirror image at the end, yeah, there's a lot of scholars who think that the the bookmarks are not original because they do change the meaning of the book. And I, I think that the end really does something satisfying with with Job, but I think it's along the lines of what you're thinking. So if you if you think about the end of Revelation, right. God in the end wipes every tear away from every eye. There's no more sickness, there's no more suffering, there's no more death. But it's interesting what God actually does. At the, end of, at the end of the book of Revelation, the cry is, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. There's a restoration of relationship. Right. And then it says that God will write his name on every forehead right. of the people who are with him. And you have to picture that. You have to think to yourself, what position do you have to be in to write your name on someone's forehead. Well, you have to be face to face. You have to be right. eye to eye. Exactly. It says we will see him and he will write his name on our foreheads. The end goal for us is to be back face to face with God. That's the most satisfying thing that we could ever experience. And, and we will have that for eternity because of Christ. So to bring that back to the book of Job, in, in the beginning of 42, he repents in dust and ashes. God corrects his friends. They go and offer sacrifices. Uh -huh. And I think part of the point is Job would have been fine if the story ended up there. It's like God right. gives him the things that, that uh, he does, 
partially because it doesn't matter at this point if God gives him anything. Right. And th- this is part of the point with the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which, we, which we've talked about before. I think the key to reading the book of Ecclesiastes is you have to understand the refrain of eat and drink and be merry. Yeah. Not as a kind of dismissive view of the world where it's like enjoy the things of the world because the world's passing away. I think it's saying the only way to actually enjoy the things of the world is to understand that it's God who really satisfies our desires and it's God who gives the good gifts of the world. So that the, the, we have to resist falling into one, one of two camps. On the one hand, not valuing the things of the world at all. I right. don't think that's what the book of Job teaches. I don't think that's what the book of Ecclesiastes right. teaches. The things of the world are valuable. And they're good and they're meant to be enjoyed. On the other hand, we can't go so far as to say that the things of the world are actually going to satisfy our deepest longings. Exactly. Right. In fact, you have to merge those two. or You have to pick a third way between those two where you say our deepest longings are only satisfied in God. And once our deepest longings are satisfied in God, then we can actually enjoy the things of the world the way that they were supposed to be enjoyed in the first place. So that we eat and drink and we're merry because we've been satisfied in God. Yeah. So the end of the book of Job, to me, functions that way. Job is satisfied in the Lord. He is... Worshiping before the Lord, as the beginning of the book says. Uh-huh. And then God grants him these things, and he enjoys those things because he enjoys God. Right. So that you do get this eschatological vision at the end of the book of Job of what our ultimate satisfaction, the resolution to all of our suffering, will actually be at the end of all time when we are in the new heavens and the new earth with God. And, you know, I really love that image, and maybe this is kind of the image we take away at the, at the end of the book, is uh, of the idea of writing God in front of us, face-to-face, writing his name on our forehead. There's this passage in the middle of Job, Job 19, where in the middle of his suffering, he says this really famous passage, but I think it makes a lot of sense in light of what you just said. For I know that my Redeemer lives... And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.